athletic competition. It can easily be broken down into two parts. The minutes or hours it takes to complete the event. Then weeks, months, and years of joy or heartbreak. Finally, the decades to analyze and debate it. From the press box to press row, Donald Ware will break it all down for you with an in-depth look at historically black college athletics, as well as the biggest news stories and newsmakers of the day. It's time to talk the talk with those who walk the walk. From the press box to press row, here's your host, Donald Ware. I think very deeply. In about four seconds, a teacher will begin to speak. I think very deeply. You're locked in to the Dopey Show on Radio Box to Throw. I am your host, Donald Ware. Got so much to get to on today's program, as I say each and every show. Hope you are continuing to stay safe. Just because things are starting to open back up, we're starting to get to a sense of normalcy, maybe the new normal. It does not mean we're out of the woods. As a matter of fact, we're not out of the woods. So please continue to stay safe social distance or or really really not social distance but physical distancing continue to stay at least six feet apart and listen i mean you know i I know there's a debate whether you should wear a mask or not why not I, i realize some people aren't able to wear masks i get it but if you're able to better to be safe than sorry the last report that i got the masks at least if you are positive they help you prevent from spreading the coronavirus. So please continue to be safe. As I mentioned, got so much to get to on today's program. You know, when we come on the show and, and what we try to do, and especially during this COVID-19 pandemic, this coronavirus has really tried to talk less about it. Obviously, when it first hit, talked a lot about it. Try to talk really less about it because I want to give you for 60 minutes just just an opportunity to kind of take your mind off of coronavirus. And thank you to those that support this show and have been listening really to this show for going on now 15 years. So we try to, you know, we do sports. uh, We do entertainment. We talk with different, have different guests on the program, some that you've heard of, some that you may not have heard of. And hopefully by the chance or by the time we're done with the interview, you will know more about the person if you've never heard of them. But listen, I mean, you know, we there is a there's been a serious problem in America uh, going back uh, and not just in America, just going back to just in time. And it is called racism and it is it is race relations and they continue to racism continues to be rampant and to rear its ugly head and now it's reared its ugly head in the form of George Floyd I know you all have heard about this the young man in Minneapolis Minnesota who was murdered by a Minneapolis police officer who held his neck down or held his knee down on his neck for in excess of five minutes as he continued just like Eric Garner's he continued to say I can't breathe my stomach hurts everything hurts continued continued to keep his knee on his neck to the point that it ultimately killed him the four officers the one that had the knee on his neck and then the other three involved were ultimately fired they were not immediately arrested and charged and I I you like this is the thing you have a a, a lot of different dynamics really uh, when it comes to these type of situations you have a situation where the person uh, the victim in this case George Floyd is murdered but then the officers they don't you know a lot sometimes they get put on administrative leave pending an investigation we've heard that story over and over but when this incident happened these police officers were not or these criminals were not charged. They were not charged immediately 
when this happened, they were fired. And it makes absolutely no sense. It, it is a senseless, absolutely senseless murder. You know, I, I don't even know what to say. Like, I mean, I, I, I heard about this before I actually saw the video. I heard about it over and over again. And I finally went and watched the video on Wednesday. And, it, and it's bad. I mean, it's as bad as it was portrayed as I was hearing about it ever since Tuesday. And I mean, I, I, you know, again, I don't have any words. Like, I don't even know what to say. Like, when is this going? It's 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 a situation where we hear about these things over and over and over and over again. I mean, you go back going back now some three weeks ago to Ahmad Arbery, uh, who was murdered. He was the, the young man that was was going for really a, a walk in the neighborhood. This is something that, I mean, I go around my neighborhood and I walk in my neighborhood really every single day. I've done it probably every single day for the last at least 60 days, every single day. And you never know. I mean, if you're black and male, you don't know if, I mean, it, it, you don't know if you're coming back home. Okay, it's 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 one thing whenever you leave the house, anybody who leaves the house, I mean, it's no guarantee. Anything could happen. You could get into an accident. Anything could happen. But when you're a black male, I mean, it's the, the, the odds of something happening are more now because now you have the racists and you have that element that demonizes us that does not see that that does not see us as human beings uh, that thinks we have no feelings and you know I am sick and tired of it I mean it, and this is the thing like you have onlookers there in Minneapolis who were pleading and yelling and cursing at the officers it's not like it's it sucks because most of us respect the badge. You respect the uniform. You respect the badge. We appreciate the the what a lot. It's not you know again. It's it, it, you can't really blanket it and say it's all police officers. But you respect the badge and respect the work that police officers do, especially in the times that we're in. So when you have all of those people that were looking on. The uniform is it's not like you can come over there and it's a regular citizen and you can go knock the person off like you, you can't even intervene. And plus, there were there was on the videotape, there was another officer that was visible. And apparently two other officers were around, but the other officer looked like he was trying to be confrontational towards those uh, particularly the maybe the even the camera person that was trying to step in. It's not like you can go and I mean, I, I, I you know, in that moment, as I sat there and watched it, I wanted to go over there and knock that officer off of George Floyd. I wanted to knock him off of George Floyd. And you can't do you like you, you you're you're helpless. And because of that, because those people who probably wanted to do something couldn't and because of the idiocy and the pure racism of that officer and these officers i mean you didn't even have the other officers that can't you look and see that if you put a knee in somebody's neck and i think the mayor of minneapolis had, had, had really put it appropriately it, it, it was five minutes it wasn't like it was something you know a, a, a few seconds it was five minutes in excess of that this officer had his knee on george floyd and i mean it's just in you know when is this going to stop you know and it and, and you know you hear the term no justice no peace i mean i'm going to tell you what i'm not an advocate for that but i'll tell you what i mean that's how i feel right about now and feel a lot of times because it's you know it's not it's it's it happens continuously this is a continuing thing between black and brown people and the police it is something's got to be done i you know i, I don't i don't and, and and really to be honest with you i'm not sure what it is i i don't you know because and then 
to make it even worse, it looks like that there was a a a, a cover up inside of the Minneapolis Police Department. They were going to try to cover this up until ultimately the video that was made by an onlooker came out. Now, you know, I don't know how and, and I haven't seen as of yet, at least the video, the police body cam uh, video, which apparently was on. But I mean, this has got to stop. It makes me so angry. I mean, I really feel for the family. I feel for this family right now who have lost a loved one to senselessness. And by the way, supposedly over a forged check or a bad check or something, it, it, it you know, it, it should have never, it doesn't really matter the situation. I mean, obviously if there was a more of a, if it was a confrontation and maybe if, you know, he was had a weapon or, or weapon or something like that, I mean, that's one thing, but this, it, it makes absolutely no sense. Um, I, I just, I don't even know what to say other than to vent my frustration behind this. And that's the other thing, like, you know, because this is not going to do anything. These continued incidences that happen are, are going to just continue to make black and brown people more angry at the police more skeptical of the police, more, I mean, more skeptical of the police. Like, you know, th- this is not, this is something that the police are doing. This has nothing to do with us. This is the police and it's not all police, but unfortunately we've seen too many of these incidences to really to keep saying, well, it's not all police and it really isn't. But unfortunately too many of these incidences continue to happen and it's got to Stop. And there's something that we I don't know what we need to do. I mean, I really don't have the answers right now. I'm more venting my frustration than anything else. Um, You know, I mean, but this has got to stop. So we obviously feel for George Floyd uh, on this day uh, and his family and all of the victims. I mean, there's so many victims uh, of police brutality. Uh, not even more, not even police brutality, but police killing unarmed black citizens. It's got to stop. Also today on the program, I want to talk about Dak Prescott a little bit and his contract. But up next here on From the Press Box to Press Row, we're going to be joined by the commissioner of the SWAC, Dr. Charles McClelland. Dish TV is better than cable TV. Here's why. Dish has the nation's lowest TV price, along with an award-winning DVR that can skip commercials, record eight shows at once, and get access to thousands of movies at your fingertips. Cable simply can't even compare. So the smart choice is to cut the cable and get Dish. Plus, you get all these great TV features, free HD DVR upgrade, free installation, and free movie channels. Say goodbye to cable and get more with Dish TV. Call 800-579-0107. 800-579-0107. As an added bonus, you can switch to Dish now and receive a $50 Visa gift card. So call now and get Dish TV. 800-579-0107. 800-579-0107. That's 800-579-0107. Limited time offer, 24-month commitment, and credit qualification required. Cancellation fee, monthly equipment fees, and other restrictions apply. Promotion can change at any time. You're listening to From the Press Box to Press Row. Let's continue here on From the Press Box to Press Row. We're going to switch gears on the program. And as a matter of fact, during SWAC Media Day on last year, had a chance to catch up with this gentleman uh, two years in as the commissioner of the SWAC, has done some awesome things with the SWAC. And as a matter of fact, he serves uh, on the uh, Division One Men's Basketball Committee uh, as well. He is Dr. Charles McClelland, joins us here on From the Press Box to Press Row. Commissioner McClelland, welcome back to the program. Hey on the show it's always an exciting time to be on the show 
Absolutely. Glad to have you and to really get some insight uh, from you. Just first of all, I just want to know how you and your family are faring uh, in this COVID-19 pandemic. We're all doing well. We have sheltered in place ever since mid-March. You, you talked about the men's basketball committee. I was in New York. Uh, we canceled the tournament. I flew back to Birmingham, and I've been in the house ever since, Donald. So I'm about to go crazy <laughs> right now. But I would say this, and I say it publicly, you know, if you really love your wife, because if you can stay with somebody <laughs> 78 days and don't leave and you're still getting along with each other, <laughs> she is my soulmate. So uh, I would like to say hello, and I love my wife because we haven't got to fighting yet. We've gotten close twice, but we, we, we're in good shape. That, no, it's a beautiful thing. So now, wait, you haven't – so you, you've been – I mean, you've you've gone out to the grocery store, something like that, though, right? Yeah, I, I have gone to the grocery store, but you know, that's not necessarily getting out. Yeah. You're talking about a commissioner, Donald, uh, that has seventy percent travel uh, all over the United States and doing all of these meetings and going to all of these fun places. And the best thing you have to look forward to now is going to the grocery store to buy some bread. <laughs> that's that's pretty tough. Yeah. You no, know, no, no. I, I agree with you, and at, at least early on. I mean, I think we've we've gotten out a little bit. At least here in North Carolina, we're in what they're calling phase two, and so some of the restrictions have been relaxed. Although I think people are, you know, getting a little bit out of line with it. But you know, it's interesting. Uh, I, I wanted to start somewhere else, but you mentioned, uh, as I mentioned, of course, you being on the Division One uh, Men's Basketball Committee. Can you take us through some of those discussions and? how it all came about that the uh, Division One men's tournament was ultimately canceled? You know, it was a very interesting process. Being a first-year committee member, I will forever be in the history books as one of ten members that voted to cancel the basketball championship. And I can tell you, when we arrived in New York, we arrived on that Monday night, and the first thing that we did was have an opportunity to go out as a group. We went out as a group. We discussed what was going on. And really, the majority of the conversation was in jest, to be very honest with you. You know, everybody is overreacting to this, you know, this flu. You know, everybody gets the flu. That's just kind of how we couched it the, the next day. So we get in the room and we start our deliberations on – you know, who's supposed to be in, and we start going through the process, and we get interrupted almost halfway through the first phase where Dan Gavin and uh, his staff had to leave and, and take conference calls, which is highly unusual. Keep in mind, we're a sequestered group. Uh, we have an entire floor of the hotel. There's security there. I mean, all of these protocols in place. Interruptions are something that never happens. And when your leader leaves your room, you know, that's the indication, you know, that something is going on. So we're there day two. Uh, interruptions happen. And we start to have the conversation about playing but playing without fans. Uh, we go that night to dinner, and we're meeting with the CBS group. Nice dinner. And I sat at the table with an individual that stayed uh, in the suburb of New York called New Rochelle. They've been in the news. They've just been in the news. Yep. And they were telling me that they had brought in the National Guard uh, because of the outbreak, not necessarily to keep people in, uh, excuse me, to keep people from going out, but more so from keeping people going in, getting affected. Uh, that was the first indication to me that this was not the flu and this was not business as usual. So now we come in on Thursday morning. And that night uh, is when we're sitting and we're watching TV, and I think that's when Rudy Gobert tested positive and then all of a sudden the NBA canceled. And that really was the shot that said this thing is, you know, way more than what we was given uh, credit to. When I say credit to, we all look towards what can we do to have the tournament. We were looking at every scenario. This tournament has to go on. At that point in time, it ran across the committee mind, we need to be looking at the reasons why not to have the tournament. Mm. And let's start looking at this in a little bit different lens. So we came back that next day, laid everything out on the table again, not an opportunity to see teams. And the decision was made early because obviously we were all in the middle of conference championships. 
we made the decision that we as a committee voted to cancel the tournament. It took about three hours in order for that decision to go up the ranks. Uh, we were kind of sitting there and sequestered. Other people were canceling the tournament, SEC Council, Big 12 Council. And we were left with the undaunting task of sitting there while the decisions went up, went down, and then went out publicly. It's a very interesting process. I know the NCAA took some heat at the time for – not effectively communicating, but you're talking about a massive organization that was giving conference latitude to have their own conference tournament and was trying to do everything that they could, every scenario that they were trying to come up with to play. That the voice of Dr. Charles McClelland. He is the commissioner of the SWAC, and he joins us here on From the Press Box to Press Row. Commissioner McClelland, where do things stand right now with this, with the SWAC and its you know, it's member institutions. This was a big year for the SWAC. You had uh, the 100-year the anniversary deal celebration in Atlanta. Um, you uh, and your staff had secured a bunch of sponsors. I think there was a, you know, a private airline, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So many great things happening. So, sort of where do things stand with the SWAC right this moment? Donald, we had a great year. Uh, last year and the momentum was definitely in our favor uh, from a sponsorships perspective we re-solidified our relationship with ESPN we were getting more games on ESPN uh, our championships were expanding our relationships with cities were expanding our membership all won on a cohesive plan of moving forward we're starting to get it restarted but it's going to be difficult for us to pick up where we left off because the environment is so different a lot of the sponsors that we were dealing with you know they are negatively impacted by COVID-19 but I can tell you we are uh, fiscally strong we've been able to balance our books mm. we're distributing uh, to our member schools uh, our council presidents have to give the final approval in their meeting on the 23rd of June. This is going to be our first time distributing to our schools in over six years, uh, maybe even a little longer than that. And we're able to do this in this pandemic, which means that we have been fiscally responsible, and we did have a good year. We're going to pick up where we left off, although, again, the environment is going to be different. And that really goes to the leadership at our institutions, not just at the presidential level, not just at the athletic director level, but the senior women's administrator, the coaches, and the staff. Everybody has joined together to help move this conference in a positive and a forward direction. We're going to continue to try to do things that's going to be innovative to make student athletes want to be a part of our conference, to make the television and the sponsors want to be a part of what we're doing, because we know the return on investment with the Southwestern Athletic Conference, you know, from a sponsorship standpoint, about $8 to every dollar that's invested. Uh, we've done the same analysis with championships with our cities and our sports, but at the same time, we want a quality experience for our student athletes. So things such as our partnerships with Tiffany's to give our awards, all of those things went into rebranding our conference. Our advisory board, we have some of the nation leaders in the industry with Goldman Sachs and Nike and NBA TV and, you know, entrepreneurial opportunities there with some of our board members. So we just try to put all of this together, leverage our brand, and move that brand forward to try to generate more revenue and more resources for our conference. You know, you, you Dr. McClellan, you're seeing across the country, and it's interesting because we're here in the state of North Carolina. You've had Appalachian State, which has cut sports. Uh, ECU or East Carolina um, has cut sports uh, uh, to save money as well. And you mentioned where this was a banner year, at least 1920, uh, a banner year for the SWAC where you were able to distribute uh, monies to member institutions. Do you see uh, where any of your member institutions may uh, cut sports for financial reasons? I do not see our member institutions okay. cutting sports. Uh, and the reason why um, is the great level of flexibility that our conference has given to our member institutions, right? We sponsor 18 sports. But there are only two schools within our conference that will sponsor the maximum amount of sports, and they have the budgets to be able to support those sports. We've also put some of our Olympic sports in pods and clusters to reduce travel. 
So if you look at some of the plans that some of our brother and sister schools are putting out there, they're doing nothing more than duplicating what we've been doing for, you know, the past two decades. So we are masters in being able to do more with less because that's the situation that we've been put in. So we are uniquely adapted to, to be able to deal with this COVID-19 pandemic crisis from a financial standpoint. Will it hit us? Yes. Uh, but we get hit from all directions year in and year out anyway. So a lot of the things that we already have institutionalized within our operations and within our strategic plan allows us to be flexible. And we're going to do some other things to be flexible. But from a conference standpoint, not only are our member institutions not cutting sports, we're not cutting our championships. You see that out there as well where they're limiting teams to come. We actually want to continue to enhance the experience for our student athletes. And that's really because we want our championship to mirror what the NCAA does. I mean, we want that to be the ultimate prize. So we've been able to do some cost savings in other areas where maybe some other conferences spent more money. And we're redirecting and have redirected that to our championships and to our student athletes experience because that is what we wanted to focus on. So I don't see any cuts. I might see some regional play or some institutions making decisions to save dollars on travel, things of that nature. But up to this point, no institution is talking about cutting any sports and we're not talking about cutting any championships. Dr. Charles McClelland is the commissioner of the SWAC, joins us here on From the Press Box to Press Row. We're going to take a small pause for the calls, come back with more with Commissioner McClelland as you're locked into From the Press Box to Press Row. We're back here on From the Press Box to Press Row talking with SWAC Commissioner Dr. Charles McClelland. Uh, so for 2021, I mean, what are the discussions that you've had, uh, whether it be with the NCAA um, others, member institutions, uh, because I think the question that's on everybody's mind is, will collegiate football play in 2020? Your thoughts? Well, I can tell you, I just hung up with our athletic directors and our senior women's administrator, which we call our SAC committee. Uh, and we game plan football scenario, volleyball scenario, soccer scenario, and cross-country scenario. We have a plan to start football on time all the way up until the third week of October, which would be our drop-dead date. And at that time, if we get to the third week in October, we have a contingency plan to push it back to the spring. Now, a lot has to happen between institutions starting in Labor Day and then institutions starting, you know, sometime in the spring. But we have game plan all of that out. I anticipate sports happening when it will start. I don't know when it will end. I don't know. But I do anticipate that we are far enough down the road to where we can test, we can isolate, we can do all of the things that we need to do as far as sanitizing and keeping our student athletes and our fans safe. But the closer we get to a vaccine, the closer we get to eliminating this virus, the better we're going to be. But I can't tell you, all of our strategic plans will call for us to start our seasons at the time that they're supposed to start in August and in September. With No, that's interesting because I think, you know, and again, just where, and you're right, it's every, that like that, we don't know. So it's ever evolving. I think where we stand uh, right now, at least maybe in my mind and others' minds, you know, it's sort of one of those situations where, wow, if you, if you're if you're in close contact. So so I guess my question would be, what are some of the what are some of the plans that are in place to prevent uh, these student athletes in whatever sport uh, it may be from, you know, uh, from getting the coronavirus? No plan at this point has been solidified only because we're still learning. We're still learning about testing. But I can tell you that we are in collaboration not only with the U.S. government, but we are in collaboration with the doctors and the chief medical officer for the NCAA. We've also put together our own COVID-19 strategic planning committee, as well as all of the local medical experts within uh, our 10-member institutions from a city standpoint. And we're all developing best practices. In addition to that, 
all 32 conferences are talking, and we're sharing information about best practices. So I don't think you're going to see any plans finalized until a little closer because they're still evolving when it comes to testing. The evolution is still about, you know, where the virus is going to be. But I can tell you some basic components. You're going to have to test your student-athletes. You're going to have to isolate your student-athletes. You're going to have to social distance your fans, which means you're not going to have sold-out stadiums. Uh, you're going to have to go through the calculation of what that social distancing area would be with that six feet times how many uh, seats you have in the square footage, and that will equate to how many people you would have in your stands. You're going to have to show of how you're going to be able to clean your weight equipment, how you're going to be able to clean your transportation, how you're going to be able to clean the locker rooms, how you're going to be able to clean the room. If you do have someone tested positive, how you're going to isolate, how you're going to treat, what happens if somebody tests positive, did they uh, come in contact with some of the student athletes that you're participating with? Is there enough to continue to play? Are you going to have to, forfeit that game? Is that game going to be moved back? All of these are things that we're game planning out now. And a lot of it is going to do to where COVID-19 is at that particular time. If we said that if COVID-19 is in the same place when we start in September Labor Day as it is now, I think we do have a definitive plan. The one thing that I tell you is going to be costly. You're going to have to test repeatedly. You're going to have to isolate. You're going to have to take those student athletes and put them in hotel rooms, take their temperatures, do a test, do a retest, right? So there are some tests that are reportedly coming out that's going to be cheaper than what the tests now are. Some of our schools have already checked with their insurance companies, and they're going to be able to provide tests. We have our medical officers there. So, again, Donald, I can't tell you today that all of those things have been etched in stone and solidified. We have a lot of information, but there's still a lot more planning that has to happen. A couple of more thoughts. Dr. Charles McClelland is the commissioner of the SWAC, joins us here on the program. So you, you, the plan is uh, for your member institutions, uh, as long as social distancing is practice, to have fans in the stands. COVID-19 would dictate whether or not we play football, we play volleyball, we play soccer, or we run cross country. It would also predict whether or not we'll have people in the stands. So we want to be flexible and fluid. But you have to plan in order for us to be ready if we can be ready. That's not to say we will play in the fall and the football season might start the first week in October and we might have to push it, up, push it back and play through December and possibly January. We're game planning for all of those scenarios. We do have plans in place that if we play, then these are the things that have to happen in order for us to play safely. And all of these medical experts are there. That lends the question, and I know you haven't asked the question, but I know you're a great reporter, and I know this is your next question. What happens if a school isn't ready? Do you move forward as a conference? And the answer to that is maybe, maybe not. If the majority of our schools have plans and they feel safe and they have everything in place to play, and one or two schools don't, I do not think that we will hold up our uh, conference and playing. But if the majority of the schools do not have those things in place, then you probably will not see us play. So, again, we have to be flexible. We have to be fluid. And all of our planning is going to ensure that health and safety is going to be of the utmost importance in any and everything that we do. So, obviously, there's a plan in place if you do have, if, if, if it, you know, if a student athlete were to, in fact, test uh, positive for uh, for the coronavirus. You, it, it, that would be more of an would that be more of an isolation deal if it's just an athlete or two? Isolating those student athletes, Donald, to if there was a massive level of contact, isolating the entire team, and then figuring out how you finish the remainder of the season with that team. Do they miss two weeks? Do you give them a bye? Do you extend the season? All of those are scenarios that are on the table that we are considering. Last thought, uh, Commissioner, and we're joined by, of course, Dr. Charles McClellan, the Commissioner of the SWAC. We appreciate the time. I, I mean, I got to ask uh, about this, and this deals uh, with the APR. Uh, and there's a couple of member institutions that are on the APR list banned from postseason play. Is this 
Can, can you speak to this a little bit? Because, uh, you know, sort of year in and year out, I hear about, you know, it's 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 a lot of HBCU schools. There are SWAC schools that are involved. Uh, is there something more uh, that can be done so that these schools aren't on the list? Is there something that more that maybe the NCAA uh, needs to do as well? Well, I, I'm going to approach that question twofold. Uh, you know, I was an athletic director at Texas Southern University where we had the nation's lowest APR. We had the nation's lowest graduation rate. As a matter of fact, when I came in and I asked, what did my APR equal to in graduation? And the NCAA couldn't even give me an answer. It was that low. Uh, it was a matter of survival for Texas Southern University. I went to then President John Rutley and said, if you don't give me the resources, sir, to hire the competent individuals that we need here at Texas Southern, and again, that's not to say that the individuals there wasn't competent. We only had two. I needed eight competent individuals to be able to get the job done. We're going to lose the athletics program. And Dr. Rutley made the commitment and gave me the resources for me to go able to go out and hire the individuals that that was needed in order to turn it around. And if you look at TSU's APR today, they've gone from a graduation rate of less than 15% to now they're in the 74% range, 75% range in their student athletes. And if I'm not mistaken, their overall institutional APR is somewhere around a 969 which is up there with the big boys. So I am of the opinion it can be done, but it can only be done with the requisite amount of resources. And I think that's where you can look to the NCAA. We've made the decision to be Division One. Mm-hmm. So if we want to be Division One, we have to meet the standard of APR. So we're not going to make any excuses. We still have predominantly first-generation college students. Our academic profile is one that we take the underserved, get them ready, educate them, and graduate them. And we do that at a remarkable rate, not taking anything away from anybody else's mission. But if we don't do it, there is no other mechanism out there in this current environment that will do it. So I think we're doing a remarkable job. There are going to be hiccups. Uh, There will always be hiccups only because we are a limited resource institution. What we have to work on within the Southwestern Athletic Conference is a strategic plan of getting the right people in the right place to be able to help those institutions that might not have all of the resources in order to get this done. And that is a plan we're working on. We have some experts in our office that know APR. We will be able to send them out to individual institutions that are having APR issues and help create those plans and then – at the conference office standpoint, we're trying to generate some dollars that we can give to those member institutions, especially those that are having APR problems, to specifically deal with whatever their particular APR issue is. And I know that we have to go, but I want to make this point. APR is an indication of retention and eligibility, which equates to a 50% graduation rate, but it is way more complicated than that. For example, one of our member institutions did not meet the threshold, not because they didn't make the 930 this year, is because they had four years ago a better APR number to drop off, and then that four-year average made them go below. Mm. There was another scenario where there was a data review, and it changed numbers from three or four years ago, so there was absolutely nothing that they could do. They had a sufficient APR number this year. So... There are a lot of intricacies that are dealing with APR that is just more than, you know, X school is graduating at a 50% rate. If you transfer and if you transfer eligible, then you don't lose the APR point. If you're at a major institution or if you're at any institution, if you go pro, uh, you get an APR adjustment. But if you're at a low-resource institution and you have to take a semester off, to go work to help your mother put food on the table, you don't get that adjustment. What's the difference between a pro player and someone having to go help their family? So, again, there are a lot of intricacies within the APR structure. But, again, we're Division One. We know what the structure is, and we're going to create a mechanism to assist our schools to continue to, to advance in that structure. I don't think that we will ever have our member institutions 
at a 100% not APR trouble for the entirety of APR. There's got to be some blips. There's got to be some anomalies. And unfortunately, those blips and those anomalies are the ones that get the attention. If you look at the five or six programs that got hit within the Southwestern Athletic Conference, and you divide that by 10-member institutions with an average of 16 sports, you're talking it went six into 160. You're talking a you know a rate of what about five or six percent. That means that 90 percent of the time we're doing an excellent job. We just need to work on that 10, and that's how we're going to approach it. Dr. Charles McClellan is the commissioner of the SWAC, and he joins us here on from the press box to press row. Uh, commissioner McClellan, really appreciate the insight. Appreciate your time. Continue to stay safe, and uh, we look forward to talking with you soon. No problem, and you know, I always enjoy being on your show. So thank you for having me. Thank you, Commissioner. We're back after this. Dish TV is better than cable TV. Here's why. Dish has the nation's lowest TV price, along with an award-winning DVR that can skip commercials, record eight shows at once, and get access to thousands of movies at your fingertips. Cable simply can't even compare. So the smart choice is to cut the cable and get Dish. Plus, you get all these great TV features, free HD DVR upgrade, free installation, and free movie channels. Say goodbye to cable and get more with Dish TV. Call 800-579-0107. 800-579-0107. As an added bonus, you can switch to Dish now and receive a $50 Visa gift card. So call now and get Dish TV. 800-579-0107. 800-579-0107. That's 800-579-0107. Limited time offer, 24-month commitment, and credit qualification required. Cancellation fee, monthly equipment fees, and other restrictions apply. Promotion can change at any time. It's Donald Ware from the Press Box to Press Row. We're back here on Box to Row. Once again, hope you're continuing to be safe where you are. In the last couple of segments, joined by the Commissioner of the Southwestern Athletic Conference, Dr. Charles McClelland, joining us on the program. I want to switch gears, talk some Dak Prescott. And first of all, it's a tough time right now for Dak Prescott with the passing of his brother. My understanding, his brothers, he and his brothers, very, very close. Definitely a tough time for him. And there had been some reports lately that Prescott was asking for about $45 million per year from the Cowboys, $45 million per, which I'm sure, and and there's been some negotiations that have gone on, and everything that I've read, the negotiations are, there's nothing that's really off track a lot of times, uh, One side will want something. The other side will want something else. You'll sort of start to come into uh, the middle. I mean, I don't think there's any way. First of all, I mean, I I hate to I don't want to really get into any player's pocket. Like, I think you should be able to get all the money that you're able to get, particularly with the money that the owners are making. That said, forty five million dollars. When I think about Dak Prescott and forty five million. Like, I can't give, I mean, me, I can't give Dak Prescott $45 million. And let me go back a little bit because around this time last year, we were also, and I spoke about the Ezekiel Elliott situation and also with respect to whether the Cowboys should pay Elliott. And I thought at that time um, they definitely should pay Elliott because I, th- I thought that Dak Prescott really needed Ezekiel Elliott he needed him badly and ultimately the Cowboys did pay Elliott with that being said and I and I went on to further say that I thought Dak's a solid quarterback I don't think he's and I still don't think he's great but even before the 2019 season I thought he was an average quarterback before 2019 he's put up some numbers again if you've listened to this program for any number of years for me in professional sports, I, I don't discount numbers, but that's not my first measuring stick. My first measuring stick is the eye test. 
and I'll use numbers to support what I see. And I thought that last year, coming into last season, that Prescott was an average quarterback. He certainly needed an Elliott. He needed a running game to really be able to do what he needed to do. I mean, he's not a, you know, I, I would, I would say he's more, and, and again, this is coming into last season. I thought he was more, more than a game manager, but he was an elite quarterback. And I must say, after last season, he's still not an elite quarterback. I would say now that he's a good quarterback. If you look at the season he had last year, because if you look at the season that Elliott had last year, Elliott had a solid season, but it wasn't a great season. And it wasn't the season that I thought Elliott would ultimately have. And it wasn't the season that I thought Elliott would have, uh, would need to have in order for the Cowboys to excel. Now, the Cowboys had all kinds of problems, you know, defensively, uh, maybe not as great as you would have liked. Certainly offensively, a lot of weapons. But, you know, you had the head coaching situation with Jason Garrett. And, I mean, the Cowboys 8-8. Eight eight. I mean, they essentially, the, the Cowboys gave the division away to the Eagles. The division was up for grabs, and the Cowboys gave it away. Ultimately, Jason Garrett was fired, should have been fired a long time ago, but rightfully so. With that said, I thought that Prescott had a really good season. Like, he had a really, really good season. Again, Elliott was solid, but not like the Elliott we've seen in years past. So for me, definitely Prescott's stock went up and certainly with him asking for a a contract because he's going into his fifth year, he's still on that rookie contract. I would say right now that he's certainly underpaid, but to ask for 45, I mean, you you can ask, I I, I mean, I'm, I'm the Cowboys. And again, I'm, you know, I'm not, I, I don't think that Prescott is worth 45 million right now that said the Cowboys have put the franchise tag on him he has yet to sign the tender he has until July 15th to sign that tender and if he signs that they're unable to come to some kind of agreement which I don't know I mean if I'm at if I'm if I'm Prescott and and he has you know listen Prescott definitely has some ammunition he even though the Cowboys were eight and eight, a lot of that wasn't on him. A lot of that was other things, not Prescott. So coming into the season, he has some ammunition more so than he had certainly this time last year going into his fourth season. Forty five million dollars is a big ask. Now, had you had a situation where perhaps the Cowboys not only make the playoffs, perhaps win a playoff game or two or make the Super Bowl. Then to me, the $45 million, even though I still think it's, it's, it's out of, it, it's, it's not necessarily, um, something I would be willing to pay, but I could understand it more. And, and, and frankly, I may be willing to make that jump, but an eight and eight season, even though a lot of that was not on Prescott, does not warrant me paying a 40, paying him $45 million. What the Cowboys were offering, so it was reported, was about $35 million over five seasons. And and this is where you come into some of those negotiations. Prescott wanted a three-year contract. The Cowboys wanted to lock him in for seven years. He'd be crazy to lock in for seven years unless they were going to pay him $45, $50 million because the the trajectory says that he's going to continue to get better. And ultimately in that second or that third contract, meaning – rookie deal, second contract, then the next contract, he may be worth more towards that 45 and $50 million range based upon how um, the the revenues for the players and specifically at the quarterback position continue to grow. I think that that $35 million range right now is a good range. But listen, you know, if I'm if at the end of the day, you know, then the other thing with Dak is this. He he's you've taken care of everybody else. You've taken care of Zeke. You've taken care of Amari Cooper. You've taken care of some of the guys on the defensive side of the football. You have yet to take care of your franchise quarterback. So I get it. But thirty one and a half million dollars for 
Prescott isn't bad at all. I mean, he's going to be making a lot, you know, and again, when you sign that franchise tag, it means that you make the average of the top five quarterbacks. I think right now the highest paid quarterback uh, right now, I believe, is Russell Wilson. Uh, And by the way, uh, the guarantees on what the Cowboys are offering are in excess of $100 million. It's not about the amount of money you make per year. It's about the guarantee. And from what I've read, the guarantee is close to $106 million. Dax, obviously, and I'm, and again, I'm not trying to be in his pocket, but when you look at the commercials, he's got a lot of national commercials. Uh, he's doing well, especially for a quarterback that's on his rookie deal. He's doing reasonably well. I'm not trying to be in his pocket. I'm just saying from an outsider looking in, he's not hurting. Um, but $45 million right now, I'm not sure. Come back to me after the end of this season. You know, you have Mike McCarthy as the coach now. I think that's definitely going to make a difference. Mike McCarthy has been one of the best coaches in the National Football League. Ultimately, has led Green Bay or helped to lead Green Bay to a Super Bowl. I know it's been some years, but he's won a Super Bowl. Now you have a coach that knows what he's doing on both sides of the football. So I think this is going to be a good season for the Cowboys. I think it's going to be a good season for Prescott ultimately and Let's see how it plays out. Sign that tender. I mean, if I'm, you know, I mean, hopefully they can come to some, maybe, you know, maybe that middle ground is 40 million. I think that's, that's high for Prescott, but his upside says that, you know, he signs a five-year deal at 40 per, maybe, you know, two or three years from now, he may be underpaid with the way that salaries are going, particularly if he wins a Super Bowl or at least can get the Cowboys to the NFC Championship game or get the Cowboys to the Super Bowl. So we'll have to see how these negotiations certainly play out. Hard to say. I mean, everything I've read said the negotiations are going well. As of right now, You again, you start high and you come to some kind of medium. Uh, but ultimately, I mean, I think the Cowboys should pay Dak Prescott $45 million. Nah, not right now, but ultimately and hopefully, and, and maybe that's one of the reasons that ultimately, you know, you have an Andy Dalton as a backup. Something doesn't go right come next year. You've got a guy that has won in the now. I'm not saying he's an elite quarterback, but certainly Andy Dalton has won in the National Football League. Your thoughts? Hit me up via Twitter at Box to Row, B-O-X-T-O-R-O-W, or on Facebook, B-O-X, the number two, R O. W, I got to run. Thank you to the commissioner of the SWAC, Dr. Charles McClelland, for joining us on the program. And for more information on Box to Row, log on to our website at BoxToRow.com. And always remember to support those that support you. From the Press Box to Press Row is presented by DW Communications.